It's a poem I'd like to share with you tonight as we begin the Dharma talk from the great Sufi mystic Rumi, who has uh, uh, produced an enormous amount of spontaneous, ecstatic, enlightened verse in his lifetime, uh, reflecting the many facets of the dual of awakening. This poem's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new awakening. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door smiling and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. It's a beautiful poem. It's uh, an invitation to deepen our capacity to welcome the unfolding of our lives, the unfolding of our humanity. And in the meditation today, we were practicing with this template of the, the host and the guest, since Katie Solaro's talk last night, uh, resting and um, aligning ourselves with this host, the awareness, that which is listening, that which can receive that which can resonate with, that which can notice all the unfoldings and shapes of the guests that come and visit us, the voices, the feelings, the hopes, the fears, the moods, and welcoming them all is quite a challenge. (laughs) Rather than judging them all or knocking them back into their dungeons and shutting the gate on them so we don't have to be with them and trying to run away not feel them but listening patiently mindfully with inquiry and knowing beginning to discern that the guests come and go they arise and pass they touch the hearts they touch our awareness but they don't stay they, give an, they leave an impression, maybe there's a reaction or a response, but they don't stay. Like any guest that comes, they, they have their time and then they move on. And perhaps we've been able to have moments of really getting a sense for what remains. What, what is actually remains as the light changes through the day, from the, the dawn to the early morning bell, to the light coming in the morning, the chanting, the talks, the practices, the qigong, 
the inner landscapes, the weather, the walking, and then now at dusk, fading of the light, the dark, before we finally get to bed. (laughs) These long days, all of that, the cycles of the days that come and go, all arising in this, have you noticed? that even uh, the movement of the morning and the day, in the morning it was so real, so here, the mealtime was so real. Don't you remember we had that lovely pie? I remember because I went back for seconds, which was a big mistake. <laughs> so, and then, you know, that the, the pie isn't here anymore. <laughs> somewhere else <laughs> so but still there's there's the, the knowing there's the knowing of the there's the presence there's the awareness and we we struggle with all the guests but we've been in, being encouraging ourselves to to be that which remains to have the capacity to welcome and be with the guests without dismissing them prematurely, without getting tangled in them and overly concerned, following them up to the room and tucking them in. We can just notice here is a guest. You know, they've arrived and they'll, they'll move and change and pass. You don't have to tuck them into bed. It's a lovely... Um, response in terms of the depth and the, and the most mysterious, this being the host. In some ways, we can use words like awareness, presence. We can't really capture what it is, beingness, the unshakable heart that's shaken, that feels like it's shaken by all the appearances that come, but there's still something that's able to withstand that's sometimes it's called diamond-like. It can cut through the appearances, but is indestructible or mirror-like. It can reflect the myriad different kinds of reflections that come and arise of the mind, the appearances, and yet it remains untouched. It's still reflective, still, or sometimes it's called empty-like. It's empty, spacious not apart from the manifestation, but remaining when the manifested changes and swirls. So what is that part of our being? In some ways, it's, it's mis- mysterious, isn't it? We can put these words to it, but the being of it, the depth of our incarnation, you know, we have ways of, of talking and feeling because we have words we might have an explanation, <laughs> but there's something fundamentally, uh, it's amazing really why we're not more amazed actually. <laughs> you know, we, we're in this life and it's a total mystery in a way, and yet we, we have all these ways of explaining it and understanding it. Here we are on this planet, or we think we're on this planet, you know, we've been told we're on a planet, we have pictures of it. And uh, in this solar system, this tiny spot in this vastness, of this cosmos, and uh, and it's you know it's it's totally and utterly mysterious. You know why why aren't we ama- 
raised, <laughs> why, why, you know, to be incarnated and to, to be present, to be aware, to, to know this mirrored universe and to yet have this depth of being that, uh, that, is, uh, that is us, that is unchanging, that is unmoving, that is always present to be with how it unfolds. There's a lovely uh, exchange with, with this um, wonderful saint in India, Ananda Mahimar. She's a contemporary saint. She's passed over. Beautiful woman who's sort of one of these beings that came in already awake, yeah, very ecstatic. Um, I remember the great um, teacher Ramdas when he, he talked about meeting her. At a, at a darshan in India, and it was after she'd been sitting with people to just go and hang out with her because she has such a beautiful presence. And uh, there were like thousands of people, and they, they'd sort of gone, and she was walking across um, the courtyard of the ashram late at night. No one much was around, but Ramdas and a friend, and one of his friends were there, and they, and they saw her, and they went up to her, and made an offering, offered her some food or something, or, and uh, she looked at them, and, uh, and, and she just took it and went on her way. And they said it was a bit like having a wild deer come up. It was, this, it was, a, it was she's human, but somehow transmitted something of the transcendent and the divine that touched into the, into the non-human almost, or the, the mysterious. It was that sort of sense of, a wildness. Uh, and so she was asked once, she said, uh, you know, because she was such a phenomenal being, and yet she lived this very ordinary life as a Bengali housewife, got, you know, was married as is the way of that culture, the husband was chosen and you know, lived her life in a very humble, simple way, and yet she was this right, you know, awakened being. And, there was, she was asked once, you know, Ma, you know, who, who are you? you know? And this was her response. She said, before I was born, I was the same. As I grew up, I was the same. As this body was married, I was the same. Ever afterwards, even through, though the dance of creation changes around me in the halls of eternity, I shall be the same. So, who's that? <laughs> what about that as a host? <laughs> yeah, so, this is uh, an expression of our deepest nature. That we, that we maybe have a, a taste of, in a way, what was maybe deeply and unshakably rooted. But we can taste that in moments, we can know that, and yet it's not apart from the, the, the unfolding of the flow of the hall, within the halls of creation. So, so being the host doesn't mean to say that we ignore the guests, or we, we, uh, we, we don't notice, but these guests that arrived are there 
They come into, into the sphere of our heart, the sphere of our awareness, and we can actually receive them with compassion. We can listen with them, we can resonate with them. So this, this evening I want to talk a, a little bit more and, and highlight or emphasize or lean into not so much the, the letting go or the, the transcendence or the, the uh, letting the things unfold and arise and pass, but a, a way of responding, guidelines to help us in our response as we move from the retreat and into the world, that the heart can, can not only be uh, peacefully unmoving, rooted in awareness, but the heart is responsive in its depth, in its listening. Yeah, it's, it's intuitively responsive, able to respond, able to, to feel deeply with the unfolding of our life, our humanity. This sometimes in we've um, we've been in the early mornings we've been bowing doing this practice with Kuan Yin the mantra Kuan Yin. Another way of talking about this mysterious heart is the energy of Kuan Yin, or in another way of uh, talking about Kuan Yin is Avalokiteshvara, which is a an archetype for the compassion that uh, is innate to the heart. At depth, the listening is connected with the with compassion. Kuan Yin is the the activity uh, of compassion. It's the activity of listening, of bringing all sounds back to the one awareness, knowing where all things cease. But it's also the activity of response, that which can respond, that which is willing to be with life in its unfolding, you know, patiently with life in its unfolding, patiently with ourselves, with the feelings, with the moods, with the difficulties, with the challenges, with the suffering. This uh, activity of Kuan Yin is known as the, the activity of the, the Bodhisattva, so this is a, an ideal or a template or a way that we can um, contemplate for our activity in the world. The activity of the, the Bodhisattva, which means a, a being that, that's a Bodhi, that can touch wakefulness, that knows wakefulness, but is responsive and concerned about the alleviation of suffering in the world, alleviation of, of uh, of, of pain is, is concerned how to how to respond the most skillfully, responding from wisdom and responding from compassion. When we first begin our practice, often our motivation, you know, when we first get interested in spiritual life, uh, often our motivation is very much, you know, how how can I be a bit more peaceful, how can I be calm, how can I get more confident, how can I overcome my problems, how can I become more successful, how can I become more healthy, more powerful, more beautiful, <laughs> which is not, they're not bad uh, intentions actually. I think all of those things can be quite fruitful, important, 
for us to taste, to know, to, to know well-being. Um, but then what we can begin to notice as we start from that intention or begin from that motivation, we can then begin to notice that it's hard for us not to be met or be challenged by the experience of, of suffering or shadow or um, unsatisfactoriness. And so the motivation, at a certain point, if we're just looking for things that will give us a high, give us a momentary sense of release, we won't really have the, the level of motivation needed to engage the, the challenges, the, the suffering when it comes, the difficulty. We won't have the motivation to sit through a sitting when we feel bored or we, we, we want to just get up and walk out. Or to go through a retreat takes quite a lot of, it, it takes a different quality of motivation because if you've noticed it hasn't just been a kind of a, a pleasurable experience that we can just, you know, it's not like sinking into a hot tub or a, or a jacuzzi or, you know, it's been, it's, it's, been, it's been work. So this motivation then can deepen that's willing, can give us more juice and it, it's willing, it, it's, it gives us the, the, the energy, the strength, the ability to work with the challenges and not just to try and, um, you know, uh, just use a spiritual practice or a practice of meditation just to avoid the difficult learning skills, patience, and inquiry. But then this deepening, as we deepen into our understanding and we start to look in the wisdom or insight practices that we've been cultivating, and we're still operating from the sense of me doing it, me getting there, me liberating myself, freeing the heart. But the whole premise that we're operating from, as we start to look into the me more closely and we realize how porous and changeable and interconnected with the whole, with, with the, within the relational field, we start to realize that the whole premise we might be operating from has a sort of fundamental flaw within it. It's, you know, we, can, we can liberate the heart, but we're also in the field of relationship. And the very self that's trying so hard is innately part of the Part of the uh, the feel the is is you know, in a way it's not as solid an entity as we assumed. You know, so as we have an understanding of of more the emptiness of the self and the interconnectedness or the self as an interconnected dynamic process, then our motivation can begin to deepen where we realize it's not just about our suffering or our challenges, but it's we're, we're inter, inextricably interconnected with the challenges of our families, our communities, and more and more glo- uh, globally, global consciousness that it's, it's you know, hard to ignore, and in, an increasing global consciousness that, that is, uh, that, that is, that is uh, that we're involved with, where there's an increase, a huge increase of intensity, and 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 uh, challenge. That you know, it's you know the there's this need in a way for us to solve or to respond. I don't know if we solve the problems because they seem so overwhelming, but the need to respond 
we realize more and more, I think, that we can't do that on our own, that we need collectively to find a way to be in relationship more skillfully together on this planet. We're getting to a point of our evolution or our, our, our growth of consciousness where we can't think of ourselves so tribally anymore. You know, we can't think of ourselves as who's going to dominate, you know, the resources. I mean, we do still think like that, but, you know, there's only one way that's going to go, which isn't a very pretty end. <laughs> you know, we, we're challenged in this intensity to have to um, find a way of seeing beyond the historical differences that have separated and created so many conflicts and wars and so much violence, to, to see our common humanity, to notice that the suffering, we can't deny that the suffering that's happening in one part of the globe is not rippling back and impacting all of us. As we notice with uh, the changing weather patterns, you get an earthquake in Chile and the tsunami hits Hawaii or something, or Japan. You know, the, the, the interdependence is becoming undeniable. We can't think of ourselves so much as this isolated self behind our castle wall, liberating ourselves from suffering and living in some idealistic ivory tower of pink rose <laughs> spiritual sort of abdication, <laughs> as much as one would like to, quite frankly. <laughs> It is becoming increasingly difficult to, to not be so absolutely aware of our interconnectedness that we're swimming in the same soup. And so this, this, this template of the Bodhisattva heart is one that's willing to rest in that rather than being so quick to, to get through all the suffering and the problems and resolve it and fix it. Fundamentally, it's not only the willingness to, to relax with more, with the challenges, the human sufferings, the cries of the world, to take the time to listen in, to be more patient with it, it's not so quickly trying to sort oneself and everyone else out, realizing there has to be a long perspective. But also not just getting lost either and overwhelmed and washed away. This is what this grounding in this host, the Anandamaima, even in the halls of creation and destruction, I will be the same. This Kuan Yin, this heart, the, it's said that Kuan Yin is the one that bestows fearlessness. Because in the practice of Kuan Yin, returning the listening, back to the, to the heart, the sounds, coming back to this one awareness. As one's rooted in the awareness, one can begin to, to really recognize the indestructibly, indestructibility of this awareness. So when you touch into that, it can be increasingly a, in the face. It doesn't diminish the suffering, but it can increase the sense of courage to be with. This world. So this bodhisattva, this this uh, 
willingness. I know in my practice for many years, um, I think because I was so attuned to the experience of suffering, I don't know why exactly, that I really was very motivated to want to, um, you know, the, the paradigm of leaving samsara, as they say in Buddhism. I don't know, if th- I don't know where I think, thought I was going, but <laughs> somehow this idea that one would, you know, a very naive idea that I would somehow ordain and sit in a hut in the forest and that in some kind of state of bliss for 90 years or 80 years or however long I was going to live, 70 years, and that would be it. I, I don't know what I was thinking. It was a complete and utter shock to me how ab- utterly disappointing spiritual life is. <laughs> it's a path of disillusionment. You know, all one's illusions get crashed, you know. Great monastery, crash. Great teachers, crash. Great community, crash. Great meditation, crash. You know, having to become more realistic, more accepting of the human, realizing I couldn't get on with my fellow um, Sangha members very well, drove me nuts. So, uh, very, you know, very confronted in, in relationships. You know, perhaps part of my spiritual vision was I would somehow escape this messy messy, messy realm of relationships which were never quite going right and always confronting me with my upsets and angers and, and frustrations and irritations. So I was really on the path up and out for as long as I could be. And then I remember fairly early on going to listen to some teachings from His Holiness in London on the Four Noble Truths the Dalai Lama, and before the Dalai Lama gives uh, teachings, he would um, give the, the Bodhisattva vows. You know, the first vow is uh, or the um, numberless beings suffer, I vow to liberate them all. <laughs> Second vow. Um, Skill, uh, skill in means are innumerable. I vow to accomplish them all. Uh, third vow. No, is that the third vow? The second vow is afflictions are innumerable. I vow to, to transform them all. Uh, did I just say that? Anyway, four vows. You can read it. You can check. You can Google them. <laughs> You'll find them. <laughs> so anyway, I, I was taking these vows and I think what am I doing I got into a complete and utter panic I've just vowed I was trying to get out of here and I've just vowed to be here until all beings are enlightened you know this is like unbearable you know it's just like unbearable and I remember going back to my teacher and saying I've done this terrible thing and how can I undo it and is there can I delete that can I you know is there some way that and uh, my teacher at the time, who was Ajahn Sumedho, said, listen, he said, you know, he said, this isn't an ego statement. You're not making this from the sense of you, you know, I mean, a little bit grandiose anyhow, that you are the one that's going to 
save all living beings. He said it's a, you know, it's a way of setting an intention. It's like setting a compass. It's a way of bringing a depth of patience. Can you take all the time it needs to in the world to be with this process as it is, to be with this deep feeling of lack of self-worth that I've been with for so many years and seems so ancient and yet never, you know, doesn't seem to really alleviate itself or lack of confidence. Can I be with the wobble of that? Can I listen more deeply? Can I have a little bit more compassion for that place? Never mind anyone else, but those beings within this heart that cry out, you know, rather than condemning them so much, condemning ourselves. You know, with my vulnerability, with my lack of security, with my not sure what to say, what to do, can I listen there with my anger, with this anger? Can I have all the time in the world? This is the Bodhisattva liberating the beings, or as Master Wa would say, crossing the beings over of the self-nature, just crossing over from suffering through this activity of the Bodhisattva, the listening, the compassionate listening, uh, allowing them the time needed to until they are ready to be released, integrated, resolved, healed. So the heart, this is a very much a heart practice. It's a softening of the heart, strengthening of the heart, it's allowing, if you like, life to burn through the heart, you know, to, to soften, to mature, you know, resisting so much the impact of suffering. It's a wonderful saying from another very ancient sage, Shaharada, uh, who was Shahara, uh, um, sorry, Shahara, who was uh, one of the teachers of a very mysterious um, figure in the um, pantheon of saints and sages and bodhisattvas and Buddhas in the Buddhist um, transmission of the Dharma, who's called Nagarjuna, who was the, the uh, Indian sage. Very mysterious because no one quite knows who Nagarjuna actually was. Uh, Nagarjuna is literally like a dragon, it's a, a sea serpent. So there's all these, these um, myths about Nagarjuna bringing up the teachings from the depth of the ocean. You know, sort of an analogy of the Dharma is always appearing, always from the depth of awareness, the Dharma wheel's always turning and revealing new teachings. And so Sahara said that while suffering increases, bliss increases. The greater the mental affliction, the mightier the primordial wisdom. The larger the pile of wood, the greater the blaze. Yeah. So this is a, a way of realizing that, that uh, not to fear suffering and struggle and pain and challenge. We do fear it because it hurts. It's difficult, but if we, with some of the skills we've been learning, the studying, the mindfulness, the being present with, the being patient with, the inquiry, we're actually being given the fuel to bring about 
the, the transformation of heart to bring about the strength, to bring about capacity, to bring about the blaze of awakening. <laughs> this is the, the, the media and the, 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 you know, the material of our life that, that actually is the fuel for our awakening. I love the way, again, referring to, you know, we can look at examples from, <clears throat> from others who have done this in the most difficult circumstances that have met the most enormous challenges and yet not been defeated, come out victorious. And again, I, you know, having been in South Africa, I, I'm constantly amazed in many ways of the life of Mr. Mandela and how he, he managed to do this in his internment for those so many difficult years. You know, where he could have gotten very bitter. He was jailed. Most of his jailers were from the Afrikaner community, spoke Afrikaans. And it was a language that was deeply hated by the African black community because it was imposed. And the, the African languages were marginalized. And so this is in the, in the educational system. So a lot of the riots in the 19, late 70s, 80s, which became, began to become the fulcrum for the, for the destabilization and the undermining of the apartheid regime were, uh, were sparked around the resistance to do with the, the African uh, medium, language medium in the educational system. So it was a, you know, it was a, a deeply political issue. And it was interesting that Mr. Mandela was uh, imprisoned and he defended himself. If you read, I really recommend his book, A Long Walk to Freedom. He was a lawyer against all odds. It was very hard to get that education through the mission schools in South Africa. Um, and you know, they did a lot to, to, to um, help and the education when there was none. And he... he Taught, he, he was educated, trained to become a lawyer, defended himself in the very famous Rivonia trials, which were phenomenal. He was at, under the threat of death, and he managed to escape that through his brilliance um, of legal argument challenge. Um, and, and yet, it still nevertheless landed up with a, with a life imprisonment, which, as we know, of course, um, eventually... He was freed and became um, instrumental in bringing about a, a relatively peaceful political transition in a country that was very, very fraught. But one of the things that he did in prison very early on is, uh, was to, he decided that he needed to learn more about those that were imprisoning him. And so rather than spending 27 years in hatred and coming out um, diminished and bitter, he actually learnt Afrikaans and then started to order books of their poet of Afrikaner poetry and literature. Started to read it. Started to befriend the gods, um, and started to really kind of get a sense for you know the psychology, their history, how they had come to where they had come to, and in fact after his. Um, released from prison, his attendant, 
who was utterly devoted to him was this uh, Afrikaner woman who would go and look after his, and he chose very deliberately to, to, to have her as his attendant, his personal attendant, and she was absolutely, you know, totally devoted. So it's, it was, it's, a, it's, a, it's a contemporary example. You know, many, you know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, people like this that we can look to, um, people that may not be so famous, but that have actually uh, used the most unbearable sufferings and been fearless in the face of them. I'm sure they felt fear. I'm sure Mr. Mandela felt fear, fear for his life, fear for his family. And yet, you know, if you, you we've had the fortune, Kitty Sarah and I, in different occasions to to be in his presence at various functions, and he has this absolute sort of regal presence, completely comfortable in his skin, comfortable. He he loves. He's able to love. <laughs> it's like having a darshan. He's able to lift a whole room with this quality of love, and he's able to have humor. He managed to keep his humor. He went to one function where his um, his wife didn't attend. Gracia, who's uh, his, his um, and uh, he was saying, "Oh, I'm so sorry, my wife can't make it, but just as well because she's always nagging me, <laughs> saying, Nelson, you're not the president anymore." <laughs> There's this lovely lightness, humanity. So, you know, this, this kind of way of meeting and working through the suffering, embracing the very things that, uh, and the very people that we would feel could, we could very justifiably um, send to the outer regions of darkness. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a human example of what's possible, what we're capable of hu- as human beings, all of us, you know, and so, we, you know, not to be diminished, um, to take courage. And this, pra- this practice of the heart, the, the heart, it's said that when it's, uh, when it's, when it's uh, in its natural state, awareness in its natural state is responsive, is able to respond with, with kindness. This first, talked about four great streams of, it's called the, the divine energies that Brahma Vihara, divine abidings that resonate out from the, from the unobstructed heart. We think of our heart as obstructed all the time, and some of us have got very wound up in thinking, oh, I'm so hindered, I've got so many hindrances, and, you know, have I got, is it more desire or aversion, or is it really restlessness, or I know I've got all of them, and those, she mentioned 10 this morning, the subtler ones, I know I've got those as well, I'm so hindered, (laughs) I'm hindered, you know, but we can also look to other radiances of our heart, the responsiveness, the, the qualities of goodness, that uh, both are innate, that we feel, that, that emerge, that spontaneously arise, and that also that can be cultivated as practices. These four energies of kindness, care, uh, lovingness, it's called metta, 
quality very near to it, but a little bit different, compassion, called karuna, the ability to resonate with suffering, to feel with suffering. The third one called mudita, which means uh, joyousness, humor, (laughs) the ability to see the the beautiful, the joyful, and then the fourth great uh, abiding and radiancy of the heart is equanimity the heart that's able to be equal in the midst of ups and downs, pain and suffering, joy, happiness, loss and despair. And all of these we can actually consciously practice with, cultivate. The practice of kindness is, is we can actually, some of you have done the meta meditation, developed contemplations, may I be well, may others be well, may I be free from harm, may others be free from harm, may I be free from um, hatred and so on. I can't remember all the phrases, but there is a form- formulas. <laughs> but the, the, the essence of this practice is, is to train, as a training, is to train to not dwell in aversion. Yes, there is aversion. There can be hatred, it's not to deny that, but to practice not dwelling there when we feel betrayed or hurt, angry. Yes, it's there, but we don't add to it, we don't create more fuel, we know it, we work with it consciously, and even if that is there, or even if we find we're not particularly liking people, doesn't mean to say we have to like everyone, but we can extend a sense of kindness or care or well-wishing. And very close to that, the, the practice of compassion. Compassion can sound so, so, you know, it's like one's being weak or wishy-washy. It's very, you know, this practice is very challenging. So it's quite a discipline to overcome pettiness and cynicism and um, bitterness that can come in the heart. The practice of compassion is the willingness to, to feel with the pain, not to just... You know, when we go into our judgments, judging ourselves or judging the world or judging others, we disconnect from our capacity to feel with. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult challenge when there's so, there is, you know, very hard to stay. We have so many images of suffering, so many things that, you know, can just numb us out, make us cynical, make us insensitive. That's understandable. I remember in the, yeah, you know, as Kitty said, we have so many knocks on the door where we are in KwaZulu. It's a very deep rural area. It's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of amazing amount of need, poverty. There's absolute kind of devastation, really, in many ways, from the results of the apartheid, what happened, the um, lack of resources. So we sort of knock on the door, money for a funeral, lift into town to the clinic, conflict down the road. And, and sometimes you just don't want to hear that knock on the door. And I think sometime when I was, it must have been last year, we have, sometimes we have these very, have these, in the summer, these very hot, hot days and then these really terrific thunderstorms and rain and then it goes into these mists and the mists can get quite cool 
And I don't know quite what I'd been having. I was very, very tired and I just wanted to rest. And I was like hiding under my blanket one of these cold, misty afternoons. I just thought, oh God, I, Lisa, I've got a couple of hours to rest. And there's bang, bang, bang. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, I'm not going to the door. I am not, I don't care what it is. <laughs> Unfortunately, Kitty Sarah's only leapt up. Very good. <laughs> And he went to the door and there's a young man, Denby, from down the road, who had his dog, and his dog had been bitten by a snake. Mm. And the little dog called Pepsi was there with this huge head. And he's like, my dog, you know, and so we, we sort of rushed around and rang up the vet and got some medicines and gave them to Pepsi, and Pepsi miraculously managed to survive. And I was just like so grateful. I would have felt terrible, <laughs> you know, just to roll over and have that extra hour snooze and left Pepsi and Intembi, you know, in, in the lurch. So it's, that's the practice of it, you know, it's that edge. It's just that's, that's the bodhisattva thing, it's just that little stretch. And yes, sometimes it is the right thing to look after ourselves and resource ourselves and take a break. I had to, after about eight or ten years in South Africa, I had to actually go back to the UK and do a lot of in-depth therapy work because I just was burned out. I'd just gotten, you know, that I couldn't, I couldn't skillfully respond. Um, there was just too much accumulated uh, pain. So it is, it is also compassionate to know there's a boundary and there's time to say there's a space to recover, but it's, but it's not, then one doesn't go, oh, that was so, so difficult, I'm, not go, I'm, not gonna, I'm never going to engage in the difficult things again. I'm just, you know, it's just say, yeah, no, we, we can grow through that and our capacity can grow, strength does grow. And we can find sometimes something that would completely overwhelm us, that you know, one day we're dealing with something and we, we're, we are maintaining our host, we are rooted in our awareness, we are able to help the situation without being blown away by it. You know, so it's, but it's that, that growing of the bodhisattva heart, little by little growing of the strength. And then when it's, the suffering's too much, this third wonderful quality, radiancy of the heart, the, the mudita or the joy, there's something that we can, we, you know, particularly if we're in a profession or working in life or where there is a lot of need, a lot of suffering, a lot of challenge, or we find our own material is quite heavy and burdensome, then it's important to know where to be, how to look in life, to connect with the joyful, the beautiful, to be in nature is often the place where we can feel a lot of uplift by the ocean, in the forests here in this country. You have so many wonderful resources, natural resources like that. Uh, you can feel a strengthening, uh, an uplift, you know, people that, that accompany. Or another way of practicing this is to hold to the good, to hold to hope the goodness, the joyful, the potentiality of human beings. It's so easy to write us all off, isn't it, as a hopeless case. Here we are about to, you know, just, we're just about to go down with massive ecological disaster. We're, you know, we're just like a hopeless humanity. We're, 
we probably should all be wiped out. <laughs> I have to admit, I've had that thought. You know, we're just screwing everything up right, left and center. We, you know, it's just, it can get really despairing. You know, but to, to hold to the goodness in ourselves, to hold to the goodness in ourselves, to value the good intentions, the efforts we make, to hold to the goodness, even people that have hurt us or we have felt upset by, to hold to the goodness in them, to hold to the goodness in life, to see it, to make a point of just seeing that, not only the dark things. And then this loss, great radiancy, which we're practicing as we get through the talk, is equanimity. <laughs> to be with a Dharma talk, <laughs> to give a Dharma talk. <laughs> To be with uh, the, you know, the, the ups and the downs, to learn to be more equal, more balanced, not to just get so high and elated when it's going, not so, like, wow. It's not to say we can't enjoy and then crash, yeah, and then get completely overwhelmed, but to, to learn to be able to accept a little bit more the ups and the downs, both have things to teach us and more subtly or more profoundly to, to let be. It's the place of peace. It's the place when, yes, there's the resonance with suffering. Yes, there's the joy and the happiness. Yes, there's the goodness. Yes, there's the creativity and the things we can do to benefit this world. But there's also the place when we have to recognize this is how it is. It is like this. War is like this, conflict is like this, birth is like this, relationship is like this. It's the unfolding on some profound, unknowable, mysterious level, the unfolding of the karmic lawfulness of it all, the manifestation has some you know, we don't, perhaps it's an affront to the sense of self to think like that because it's all we can, re we can really think this shouldn't be like this. But it is like this. It is like this. There is, you know, terrible things that happen. And, and how, you know, can we find a depth of okayness with that too. It's not to say that we're saying that it's okay. It's not okay, but we can be with it in an okay place, in a deeply listening place, in a deeply letting be place. It allows for the mysterious uh, connection with this deeper peace that we all share allows for a, a, a tapping of that and a, perhaps a response that can emerge from this depth of equanimity that is aligned very accurately with what is needed rather than us running around trying to fix everything. Sometimes it's not so much that we can solve a problem but the solving can be the listening with the bearing with someone in their life. You know, we might 
we might not be able to help someone, rescue them, but the fact that we were there for them and witness to their life. I'm thinking of, um, Kitty Sara mentioned in the, in the um, questions today, he mentioned about the family that uh, were refugeed and we went away from, we were kind of almost given this land where we now have the hermitage, Dhammagiri Hermitage, where we have retreats and from where we run some of the outreach work. And uh, we went away every, from the very beginning in South Africa, we've uh, gone overseas every year to work to help support our work there, actually. Um, and so we'd go away for a few months and we came back and we had a family move in. And um, they were kind of refugeed, they had nothing basically. And, and in the end, they landed up living with us for eight years. Which was a which was a trip, you know. It was a it was a it was an interesting dynamic to figure out, you know, how to do this relationship and um, what was needed and what our limitations were. And in the end, we came to a limitation when it was time to part company and find out how to do that skillfully, how to resource. And one of the one of the commitments we undertook was to educate the children and. Um, and help them find and build a home in their tribal land. And we carried on one of the youngest lad in Kululeko. Uh, we, we continued with our commitment to support him through education, through, he wanted then to, he did incredibly well, very hard. Um, he stayed within his culture in a, in, a, in a schooling system which is very bad, very under-resourced. He did amazingly well. Showed a lot of um, uh, a lot of perseverance, actually, uh, to get to school, to learn English, to teach himself. To then he wanted to learn to drive, so driving lessons. He did that. He got then he wanted to be a truck driver. Did that, and. Uh, you know, went through ups and downs and failures and successes, and then he wanted to be a police cadet and got trained up. And uh, it was worrying, you know, because it's very dangerous. Um, and I'd say, you know, in Kuruleko, you know, I'm not, you're not, you know, really happy about this whole police cadet thing. It's pretty, you know, he'd be quite sort of like, well, we're, we're learning to use guns and this and that. It's like, oh, God, you know. And that, yet that's what he was doing, he was out there. And, uh, you know, and he, always, he always thought of us as his uh, white parents. He was a Zulu. And, uh, you know, it was a very close relationship. We'd known him since he was about 11. And uh, last year he was out, called out on an assignment, uh, a burglary, and was shot. Yeah. And killed, just like that. You know, he's 24, and uh, you know this. This it was a, there's a situation. I still can't come to terms with it really, but it's a situation that happens all the time. There it happens all the time in many places, and you know this. It hardly even gets a mention because it's so frequent. And you know, it's it's one of those baffling things. You think there's a young person's life taken like that, completely senseless. 
completely random, completely like in the wrong time at the wrong place. And yet, you know, I can take, uh, I can, uh, it's funny, this might sound a bit strange to you, but I, when I was going through London, um, just now on the way to the States, I, I, uh, I met a, a person that was very psychic, and he said, you know, he said, there's this wonderful, strong young man, and he's here. <laughs> I said, oh, that sounds like Sydney. <laughs> And he wants to say thank you. <laughs> and he wants to say he doesn't know how to repay you and he's going to help. Who knows? Who knows what this mysterious world is? But what I do know, who knows what his life was? But what I do know is he lived it well. He met, he, was, he had a difficult life. We were able to help. And he met what... what overwhelmed many of his younger generation, his young generation and completely, you know, undid them, has undone them. He met all the challenges really well and grew in strength, grew in capacity, grew in confidence. And he, you know, his life was short, but it has had an impact. I'm telling you now about him. And, you know, the, the impact uh, for us is that he touched our hearts. And we were able to witness to his life. There's a connection. There's a connection of, you know, who knows how that will unfold, what that's about. Uh, so in this, this way of, you know, uh, cultivating a heart, it's not being frightened not to allow life to impact us, not to allow those guests in the guest house to come rushing in, as Rumi says, to violently sweep our house clean. You know, these, these beings that appear in our life that we think, you know, that we, you know, we, that we maybe fantasize a whole world that may unfold a future and then who knows. But in that moment, the, the guest, the guest of others that come and visit us, bring us, touch our hearts, bring us themselves to our hearts, we bring ourselves to their hearts and in that communion, in that communion we can grow in our humanity. So tonight I'd like to leave you with a, a, a wonderful teaching about our humanity, yeah, that uh, here we are together. It's from Master Hua, the, the master who taught us about the Kuan Yin Bodhisattva Dharmas. All living beings are my family. This whole universe is my body, and all of space is my university. My name is empty and formless. However, kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity are my function.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.